to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. I invite you to stand as we receive this word together. I'm going to begin reading here with verse 25. Jesus is speaking, and these are the words that he shares with us. <clears throat> From verse 25, John 14. Jesus All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and I will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. May God add his blessing to his word today. Please be seated. This past week, I was called home to Richwood to do a funeral for a cousin. He was 24 years old. He was blind and suffered from cerebral palsy. His parents, therefore, had devoted their entire life uh, to him. They took care of him, of course. They were an advocate, an amazing advocate in that community for him. He had contracted the flu, and while it was not initially seen as life-threatening, on Friday night, they put him to bed. At 3 a.m., as was normal, they got up and they checked him, and it appeared he had broken his fever, and so they took some covers off of him. At 6 a.m., when they returned, his breathing had stopped, and he was gone. One of the ways that uh, we try to deal with anxiety is to say to each other, what's the worst that could happen? And when we think about that and we name the worst thing that could happen and realize that often it's just not really that bad, then we aren't as afraid. However, when that moment comes when what happens really is the worst that could happen, what do we do then? What happens when the worst really does happen? At the funeral uh, for Derek, I preached a message out of Mark chapter 5 where a synagogue official named Jairus has a young daughter who is on the verge of death, who comes pleading with Jesus for him to come and heal her. And Jesus agrees to go with him, as you know the story. But you remember, along the way, Jesus is touched by a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and she thinks that if she could just touch his garment, that she believes she will be healed. And so she reaches out, she touches him, and indeed, she receives that healing. But one of the things we realize is that Jesus is not a gumball machine where you put a quarter in and you get just healing that pops out. He wants to know her. He wants to, to love her. He wants to, to give her healing in her soul. And so Jesus stops. He wants to know who touched him. He wants to know this woman. He calls her daughter, in fact. And if you think about it, that must have made Jairus incredibly mad. Because he's worried about one thing. His daughter. And wouldn't you know it, just as Jesus is paying attention to this woman, word comes, Jairus, your daughter has died. You don't need to bother Jesus anymore. What happens when the worst thing that could happen does happen? What happens when the worst thing that could happen 
does happen. The worst thing that this man could have imagined happened. His daughter died. But it is in that moment that Jesus looks at Jairus and says these words. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about that rising sense of anxiety and fear. And even when the worst thing that could happen has happened, because I think Jesus still says to us, don't be afraid. Just believe. Last Sunday, we began a series that I'm calling Above and Beyond in 2020 as we think about what spiritual growth really means. As we have seen, we as Christians have the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and that Spirit is intended to transform us and make us more faithful, more gracious, more like Jesus himself. And this morning, I want us to talk about that real issue that I think we all face to some degree, and that's the issue of anxiety and worry. This is from the Apostle Paul when he is writing to Timothy, and apparently Timothy dealt with some of these same issues. And in fact, I'd like us to to read these words together out loud because I think they are are central and and it's good for us to reflect and hear this and and kind of move it into our souls this morning. So let's read this together. 2 Timothy 1.7, For the spirit that God gave does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-control. Now, one more time. For the spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-control. Now, if we reflect on that, I think we discover this truth. God does not want his children to live in worry or anxiety or discouragement or fear. He wants you to live in a bold sense of confidence that only his power can bring. The spirit of our God is not a spirit of timidity. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know this. You are not a part of a timid movement. I want to just for a moment think about the people of God. You know, the people of God began with a, a man named Abram. Abram, God said to him, Abram, I want you to leave your home, your country, everything that is familiar to you. And I want you to go into a land that you do not know. And I want you to build a community there that you will never really see. But I will be with you. And Abraham went and God led him. God said to a man named Moses, Moses, I want you to confront Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and demand that he let my people go, and I want you to to not be afraid. I will deliver my people. Moses confronted, and God delivered. God said to Joshua and Caleb, although all the other scouts are afraid, and they say you can't possibly take the promised land, even though that you look like grasshoppers compared to the greatness of your enemies, you tell my people, yes, we can. We can take that land. Be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They were strong. They were courageous. And God gave them the land. Our God told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not to bend the knee to an idol, even if it meant facing the fiery furnace. Of course, they did not bend and they did not burn. 
A woman named Esther, who thought that she was just maybe more, no more than a harem girl, was told that the, the fate of God's people rested on her shoulders. And she said, I will go to the king, though it cost me my life. She went to the king and she saved his people. A boy named David faced a giant called Goliath. A man named Elijah defied 700 prophets of Baal. A man named Daniel was thrown into a den of lions and was not eaten. And of course then, a man named Jesus came and he said to his friends, do not be afraid. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. The world said to him, if you don't be quiet, we'll kill you, and your death will be the end of everything. Of course, he would not be quiet. They did kill him on a cross, and his death was the end of nothing. His death was the beginning of a new creation. He rose again, and then he sent his spirit. The spirit in the Old Testament worked from moment here and a moment there and worked from one person and maybe to the next person. But when his spirit comes in the New Testament, it invades a whole community of followers, just ordinary men and women like you and me. And what we see in the New Testament then, it's a beginning of a movement where people began to pray and work and give and sacrifice. And of course, they were threatened. They were arrested, they were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were killed. You could say the worst thing that could happen, happened to them again and again. And every time, they, every time a Stephen was martyred, a Paul would get converted to take his place. Every time a Paul got executed, a Timothy would rise up to fan the flame. That's our community. That's our people. That's the spirit that has been poured out on you and me. And in case you think that that's all something long time ago in a far, far away land, in a far, far away place, church historian Everett Ferguson calculates more Christians have died for their faith around our world in the past 50 years than in the first three centuries of the life of the church happening today all around us my friend if you are getting robbed of joy if you're afraid of tomorrow if you're frightened to trust god that is not from the spirit for god has not given you a spirit of timidity not in your work not in your speech not in your finances not in your relationships God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power of love and of self-control. And so Jesus says, peace I give to you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. So we're a people of peace not a people of timidity. Now, I want you to know the peace of Jesus is something much deeper than managing it. It's much deeper than self-help techniques. The peace of Jesus is something that comes from within, isn't it? We talked about this last week where the belly, the, the living waters flow from. It comes from your core. It's living that life and putting your life in God's hands and realizing that his hands are very, very strong. 
They have lost none of their power, and therefore, one day, all things are going to be well again. But I'm going to put my life, my problems, my difficulties in your hands, Lord. And therefore, Jesus says, this is my advice to you. Don't need to worry. Just be free. Just be alive. Just don't be burdened. Just put that in God's hands. Someone in this room needs to hear that this morning. That's the spirit God gives. That's not a spirit of timidity. Now, I want to give you a caveat at this point. Everybody worries. Can I say amen? Everybody worries. Some of you don't worry occasionally. You do it all the time. You are champion worriers, right? You're competitive worriers when it comes to this. You can beat up anybody. In fact, if you find yourself not worried, you get worried that there's something you ought to be worried about. And you worry until you figure out what it is. And of course, you hear a sermon like this, and what does that do? I shouldn't worry. I must need to worry about how much I don't worry, or how much I do worry. Or, and we start thinking in those terms, I shouldn't worry so much, so I don't trust God enough. And then you start worrying about that, and it all gets out of hand. So I, I want to say this, and I want to talk, talk to each of you this, this day. You know, uh, the truth is we all have different levels of worry. We all grapple with that differently, I suspect. An awful a lot of that is not because of the amount of our faith, but rather because of our makeup, you know, our, the way God designed us, the wiring we were born with. I think we all have genetic predispositions and certain emotional makeups. We're all wired in slightly different ways. Daniel Goleman wrote the book Emotional Quotient or Intelligence, and he says that from birth, uh, between 15 and 20% of children are just prone to, to being timid. If you have watched kids and you've been around them, you, you know this is probably true. You've seen that. There are just some kids, from the time they are born, they're going to be more finicky about the food they eat. Or they're not going to be comfortable in certain situations. They're, they're shy around strangers. Now, there are others, wow, bring it on. But, but certain children are like that. From birth, their, their hearts actually beat faster in new situations. Now, what's interesting to me is this is true not just of humans. Exactly the same proportion of cats are prone to timidity too. They are less curious they're less likely to grow, uh, to go into new territory. Now, this is real research. They kill smaller rodents, 15% of cats. About 15% of them are, are, are afraid. Now, now, if you think, wait, wait a second, is that a spiritual problem? Is it that the cat is just not close enough to God? No cat is close to God, so that's not the issue. I'm a cat owner, I know. <laughs> People who wrestle with anxiety, and some of you are in this room, deep anxiety. Panic attacks are, are, are debilitating at some point. But some of those people are, in fact, some of the most courageous people I know. Some folks wrestle with social anxiety to, to an extent that simply being in a crowd like this one. It's difficult, and yet you're here today. 
It can be more difficult to go and participate in a room like this for you than for another person to maybe even jump out of an airplane. And yet, you're here. Take courage. My point is, is when it comes to this area, I think we need to be very careful not to compare ourselves with our neighbor. Don't assume that you can pass judgment on their faith because they react and deal with a situation differently than you do. Because only God knows what our wiring is really like. And, and so he knows where we start from. Don't waste your time then worrying about how you are get, feeling guilty about worrying. It, it's simply not going to help. But I do believe there is something that can help. You know, that word worry, and I've shared this with you before, comes from the German word virgen, which originally meant to strangle or constrict, to choke. I think that's a, a really interesting picture. In fact, why don't, why don't you just uh, put, your, put your arms and hands around your, your neighbor's neck right now and, and wait till they turn red, and you'll get a really good illustration of what that looks like. Worry chokes life. It does. It shuts off life. Now, Jesus, who is really into life, says, I came that they might have life. I want to free them from their worry. Worry is never God's will for anybody's life. It, it never is. What is going to help us? Well, I go back to Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. As it begins, it starts this way. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My friend, when you are down in that valley, when the, the darkness overshadows you, it's best to learn to lift up your eyes. See where your help comes from. Lift your eyes a little higher. My help comes from the Lord. That word help is such a beautiful word to me. It's used over 200 times in the Bible, and most often it is used of our God. God is a helper. You know, when Eve is described as Adam's helper, it's the same word. The word used for Eve is the same word used for God. It's an amazing and wonderful word. The Lord is my help. He's right there. So the point we need to remember is, is that, listen, I am not in control. I can't do everything on my own. In fact, I am not in control of anything, really. Can anybody guarantee your body will stay healthy? No, you can't. You can exercise every day, eat right, see a doctor once a month, but the clock is still ticking. Can, can you control the economy? No, you can't. You can work hard, you can save every penny, but ultimately in a moment, it can be wiped out. Can you make your spouse change? Apparently there's some ambiguity there. Help me out. Can, can you help? Correct answer is no, you can't. You can't make your spouse change. God can change your spouse. Well, that's good news, isn't it? God can change your spouse's spouse, if you think about it. 
Now, you have to think about that, but what does that mean? You know, our biggest problem is we want to trust in me. I want to trust in my gifts, in my abilities, in my hard work. I want to trust in my finances, in my network of people. But all of us are going to run into a hill that is too tall for us and too difficult for us to climb. And on that day, you want to know that you can lift up your eyes. I lift up my eyes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Now listen, Jesus did not say, if you follow me, you will never have problems. Did Jesus have problems? I think Jesus had some big problems. He challenged sin. He challenged people's greed and materialism and religious pride and sexual brokenness. He was always getting into trouble. In fact, he ended up getting killed. So he had some problems. And he said this, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. In this world, you will have trouble, but don't worry. I have overcome the world. When Caleb and Joshua, I'm the father of three sons and a daughter, and when Caleb and Joshua, my oldest sons, were quite young, probably around three or four, I remember taking them swimming. I think we were at a hotel in Pennsylvania, and it was always a big deal, you know, when when you get to go to a hotel with a swimming pool for just a day or two, and the kids loved that, going out and doing that. So daddy would take the kids swimming, mommy would take a nap. That's kind of how it worked. Well, uh, I was out there at the pool, and at, for just a moment, I was, I was playing with Caleb, probably bouncing him all in, up and down, and Joshua was at the side of the pool, when suddenly, he falls in. Now, I happened to be right there. It's not like, you know, instantly I had him, but he did go under, and he was shocked, and he was scared, and he was upset, but he was okay. And he got up, and I pulled him up, and he said, I drowned, I drowned. (laughs) I said, son, no, you didn't drown. I had you the whole time. You were always safe, so let's not tell mommy about this. Listen, there are times when you feel like, I drowned. I drowned. But the Father says, I had you with me the whole time. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he dies, will live. Nothing can separate you from God's ultimate love and his care. Not even death. That's why I respect men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know his story. He was a German pastor who was willing to stand up to the Nazis. One of the few pastors in that day who was willing to stand up. For two years, he was imprisoned in some very difficult and horrible conditions. 
His cell was once struck by debris and shells from the war, and so the window was blown out, and therefore he just had to suffer the miserable, cold German winter for days on end. One of the prisoners with him, an English officer who survived the ordeal, wrote these words concerning Bonhoeffer. He said this, he said, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound, profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was always real and always near. On Sunday, April 8th, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that, that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and resolutions that it brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. Of course, that only had one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. We quickly said goodbye to him, but he took me aside and whispered in my ear, this is the end, but for me it is the beginning of life. Now, how is it that when the worst has happened, you can still worship? How is it in the shadow of Nazi evil and certain death, you can still celebrate? Because even when the worst thing that can happen has happened, Jesus still whispers, don't be afraid. Only believe. Jesus went to Jairus' home. The people were weeping. And they started laughing, in fact, at Jesus. Jesus dismisses them. But he went in to see the body of this lifeless girl. And if you remember the story, he simply said to her, Talitha kumi. Little girl, get up. And she did. Because listen, my friend, death itself might take you, but it cannot hold you when you are held by Jesus. And so for the Christian, we don't need to worry. We don't need to be afraid. Are you being held by Christ at this moment? Do you know him as your Savior? Is that your reality as you begin this 2020? Because when the worst thing happens in your life, can you look up and say with confidence, the Lord is my Let's pray together. Father, I know that in this very room right now, there are stories of heartache. 
There are stories when it seems like our world has fallen apart. And Lord, we don't know what this year holds. But oh, what a comfort it is to know that we are being held by the one who is maker of heaven and earth. And he knows us by name. And he calls us son and daughter. And he is a good father. So Lord, even in those moments when we feel like we are drowning, that Lord, we look and we say we drown, may we with confidence know that we need not be afraid, but might we only believe in you. Lord, increase our faith this year. Help us to trust you more. And even in the difficult moments, Lord, help us to see your grace and abound with joy and life because others are watching us. And may they see, Lord, our reactions, and in doing so, may they come to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, if there is someone here today who can acknowledge you as their Savior, that you would work in their life and call them to yourself. Might they repent of their sin and be given, Lord, and receive that fact, that, that gift of life that only you can offer. I pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.